0: In Britain we have a two-party system. There are the Conservatives and there's the Labour Party. And if you want a government it's going to be one of those two. There is a second rank of parties. They're sometimes in government but generally not. The Liberal Democrats, the SNP who of course are in government in a devolved administration in Scotland and more recently the Green Party of England and Wales. They won their first MP in 2010, that was Caroline Lucas in Brighton Pavilion. But it's only since 2019, in the last four years, that they've picked up serious numbers of councillors. They now control a council in England for the first time ever with an overall majority. And they're picking up people from Suffolk to Bristol to Burnley. They're very much a national party. So we thought it's high time we speak to one of these representatives who isn't Caroline Lucas. That's why today we're speaking to the party's deputy leader, Zach Polanski. Zach Polanski, welcome to Downstream. Thanks for having me. It's a very hot day today. So <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm welcoming you not just to an interview show, but also to a Makeshift Navara Sauna. Uh, you, you're wearing a blazer there. You're trying to keep up the politician's shtick. <laughs> I'm just trying to be smart. We'll see how long that lasts. The smartness yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, t- tell us a little bit about yourself because. Some of our audience will know who you are. You've been a a more prominent face for the Green Party. You're a Green Party politician. What's your story? Uh, What positions do you hold? Where do you come from originally?
1: Yeah, so I think the most obvious thing to say is I never intended to be a politician. In fact, I was an actor. I was doing lots of work in community theatre. Anyone who watches this who knows he's been an actor will know when you say you're an actor, it probably means you do about six or seven different jobs. Do anything to pay the rent, basically. I was working in a bar, working in a nightclub, working in a school, doing lots of different things. Um, but the community theatre that I was doing largely was something called Theatre of the Oppressed, which is where you work with a marginalised community. And this came from South America, where they were working in the favelas. What you do with that marginalised community is you encourage people to help them to find their voice. So take young renters, for instance. The actor might play the landlord, and then the young people would literally rehearse for revolution, as it's called. So they would challenge the landlord, and then the rest of the audience would go, have you tried it this way, or have you tried it this way? And so the audience end up directing the other people within their community to try and find their kind of loudest voice or most effective voice. Now, I think you can only do that for so long where you know, I massively believe in community empowerment. I think it runs through everything in my politics, but you can have the most eloquent, articulate speaker who has found their voice. But if there's still systemic injustice, there will sometimes be injustices that mean their voice just doesn't cut through or they can't get things done. So I think it was only a matter of time before I got involved with politics. Um, In 2005, 2006, I went to live in America I was at drama school there. I didn't know if you want this long. Go on, history. Zach. Nobody else. <laughs> this is exclusive downstream content. <laughs> Amazing. Anyway, uh, when I was there, I think that was the first time that I kind of I woke up to politics. It was George Bush's second election. Right. I was living in the deep south near Atlanta, Georgia, and both my LGBT friends, but also my friends from you know the black community and various other communities were really deeply feeling the effects of what was going to be another George Bush election. In fact, on my birthday, a surprise party that the community threw for me, uh, George Bush won for a second time, which I would say, you know, threw a dampener on the party. It was 2004. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good good historical knowledge there. Um, I think what became really obvious to me at that point was the problem with the two-party system, which I'm sure we will talk about uh, in this interview because it runs through a lot of the work we do and the need for proportional representation. So when I got back to the UK, proportional representation was kind of my mission. It was the thing that was, was on guard. And at the time, the Green Party, I felt, weren't talking about that. Um, I've since spoken to Natalie Bennett about that and she said, completely fair enough, Like, if you've got 30 seconds of airtime, are you going to talk about the climate crisis or are you going to talk about proportional representation and electoral reform? Now, fortunately, we've got more media time now, not as much as I think we deserve, but we've got more. So we found a way to do both. But at that time, it felt like the Liberal Democrats were talking about PR. So I joined the Liberal Democrats, first of all, in about 2015 and then left in 2017. 2015? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: So you're getting politicized after 2004, yeah, and then you do the theatre stuff after that. Uh, no, that's been it's all before that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what are you doing between 2004 2015? Being an actor, basically, being an actor. Yeah, and you decided to get involved in parliamentary politics in 2015 or in 2010 or when? When was there? There more of a sort of
1: a, a focus to electoralism. I think 2016. Um, so that was pretty much when I left the Liberal Democrats. So it was yeah. a period of time where I wasn't in any party at all. And yeah. um, I'd had lots of debates with Sean Berry, a former co-leader and my uh, colleague on the London Assembly. And just she would make arguments and I would go home to my boyfriend and be like, she's just really right about so many things. And actually, there's coming a point where I'm realizing I'm just in the wrong party. And as much as proportional representation is important to me, Mm. there must be a space in the Green Party where people are talking about electoral reforms, but actually a party that is on the left that is talking about the need for social justice, environmental justice, climate justice, all of those things are clearly core to everything the Green Party believes in. So that was when I made the move. And then even when I joined the Green Party, I don't think there was a moment where I thought, Well, there must have been a moment at some point where I thought I'm going to be a politician now and I'm going to get elected. But I didn't join with that intention. I was still very much acting and busy. And I think this is lots of people's experience of joining the Green Party. I should phrase it differently because I want people to join the Green Party, but you join and then someone goes, oh, would you like to deliver some leaflets or would you like to help with policy? And because it's a relatively small party, there's lots of ways very quickly to get involved and highly involved with the party. That's something I defend totally. I think like that community politics that involves everyone that says to anyone who wants to join the party, there's a place for you, whether it's knocking on doors, delivering leaflets or helping to develop policy or working on our kind of uh, comm strategies or any any of those things. There's places for that kind of localism and community parties to, to get involved within the bigger party. What, why didn't you join Labour? Because this is 2015. There's obviously a backlash to
0: austerity politics.
1: Yeah, um, again, because of proportional representation. And still, I just felt like Labour weren't talking about it back then. And I would argue it's gotten much worse now under Keir Starmer. I think... Um, going straight into attacks here. It's not really an attack, but I think it is a fundamental <laughs> difference between the Labour Party and the Green Party, is that the Green Party, you know, I'm, I'm deputy leader, but formally there is very little power for the leadership. And I would defend that. The way our policies are made is one member, one vote. So everyone comes to conference, any kind of policy that anyone wants to, to push, they get down, we have experts look at it, there's a discussion, there's various workshops. And then on the conference floor, if it goes through, that is then party policy. And then as the deputy leader, it's, it's my job essentially to be the spokesperson for that policy. Now, in Labour, we saw kind of a, a imitation of that process where there is a conference and proportional representation was passed. And, you know, kudos to the people within Labour, many of which I would consider friends who work so hard to get proportional representation passed. They worked brilliantly with the trade unions, with CLPs, they lobbied MPs, and they finally got proportional representation passed on the Labour conference floor. And then Keir Starmer said, no, not doing that. And in fact, uh, more recently, he's given stronger statements about that. And I just think, how can you pertain to be a leader or to represent a movement if you won't even listen to what that movement wants. And it wasn't a close vote. I think something like 80% of people voted for proportional representation on the Labour conference floor. I think there's lots of good arguments for proportional representation. They're well rehearsed, so I won't repeat them now necessarily. But I also think the bigger argument here isn't even about proportional representation. The bigger argument is about, are you listening to your members? Are you representing the movement? Are you doing what people in those communities want them to do? Or are you actually listening to vested interests, to donors? Is the argument always to, you know, just get the conservatives out? Of course we need the conservatives out. We've had 13 years of austerity. Everyone's feeling it, not least the people who are living in poverty and have the least privilege in our society. They're really feeling it. But ultimately, if what you're replacing this horrendous conservative government with is something that's just Tory light, that is in the pockets of uh, vested interests, of corporate donors, that doesn't really represent the people, are people left with a better option? Now, it's not Good enough to just kind of berate Labour. I totally get that. No, we'll have, do that. We'll do that, Zach. Don't worry. <laughs> you have to have a positive, hopeful vision and hopefully during this interview. That's what I can present to you. But I think it is important to recognise that fundamental difference between the two parties. Well, let's stick with Labour
0: because you've started this with with PR, and it's one of the reasons why you're involved in politics. And and I think
1: it's a very you know we
0: like to mock the Dems on the of media. We like to mock people of all persuasions, but I I think there's a core belief in electoral form which the Liberal Democrats have held onto for decades. For me, that's the most important part of their political tradition, and it's just a shame it wasn't it wasn't part of their agenda for government after 2010. And I can understand why you went from the from the Lib Dems to the Greens, and why you didn't join Labour as it goes, you know. And I think you were that was confirmed that decision, given what's happened um, since. Do you think Keir Sam will introduce proportional representation as as prime minister? Do you think he'll reform the electoral system?
1: I think there's not a chance. I think that um, everything in me wants to believe that, you know, he's some kind of undercover progressive uh, electoral reformer who is just doing what he needs to do to get into government. And then he's going to suddenly stand up for migrants or stand up for striking workers and try and reform the system by abolishing the House of Lords and bringing in proportional representation. But let's look at the evidence that's in front of us. Every single pledge he made when he was leader, not everyone, that's not fair. Nearly every single pledge that he made when he was leader is getting ditched day by day. And it's being done with almost a joy. It's not like he's mm. kind of carefully trying to hide it. It's a very kind of, well, look, you know, I'm purging the left. I, I'm sick of them. I, I didn't want, it, it's didn't want them It's very conspicuous, isn't it? Exactly. Mm. And I think it's clearly part of that political strategy. And so we also know he's not brave. He's um, arguably a safe pair of hands. I don't think he is a safe pair of hands because I think society is clearly in a very destructive Uh, We're not really in a cost of living crisis, we're in an inequality crisis. So if you're a safe pair of hands that are going to maintain that inequality, then that is essentially continuing the destruction of society, not least the existential crisis that is the climate crisis too. So the idea that you can just maintain the status quo as a safe pair of hands, I think, is a very challengeable statement. But I think it is also fair to say is he's not a reformer. He's not bringing brave policies. He's not looking to rock the boat or shake things up. And I think anyone who thinks that he's going to bring about electoral reform without a huge amount of pressure and being pushed into it is probably being very naive. I think there is a question about if there's a hung parliament. Um, and there's some sort of um, mix-up of uh, Labour, Liberal Democrats and hopefully Green MPs too, then for the Greens, certainly the absolute red line would be proportional representation. I hope the Liberal Democrats will hold that line too. I guess the question is is how much is Keir Starmer against proportional representation? And I think this is the constant thing we hear from Labour that they're looking to get an overall majority. And I just think, again, that's a fundamental difference about your politics. There's a really interesting survey done by uh, YouGov a few years ago that asked people to create that ideal parliament. And said, regardless of your politics, what would the perfect parliament look like? Um, and even amongst green voters, greens didn't get an overall majority. They had like a lot of green seats. But I think there was a recognition that scrutiny, opposition is actually a really healthy part of a democratic process. And some kind of benign authoritarian, all seeing, all hearing government is actually really unhealthy for democracy. But I think what we see in Keir Starmer's Labour is this very top down approach. And then just finally on this answer, I, I experienced this with Sadiq Khan, who I, I've chaired the Environment Committee for the last two years in London. It's my job to scrutinise Sadiq. Now I work with Sadiq closely, not because our politics are particularly close, but I think it's important to have a collaborative, cooperative relationship with someone, particularly if there are things you agree on, like the fundamentals of the climate crisis. But there's also huge gaps in his plans and I regularly work to expose those. One very recently is I called on him to ban private jets. I know he can't ban private jets. So then I said, would you even condemn private jet use? He said that he condemns Rishi Rishi Sunak's use of private jets. And I said, that wasn't (laughs) the question. Would you condemn all private jet use? And he said, there might be circumstances where someone needs to use a private jet I said can you give me a circumstance and he said time of day now if you think the Prime Minister can't use a private jet which I agree with but it's a pretty important job being Prime Minister I totally agree I think he's who, one of the
0: few people that probably should use a private jet if you're looking at that argument uh, yeah I'd still argue with not that not for even, internal but flights but if you know of all the people in society that would have it you'd say very very senior political figures arguably maybe a theta go to a a conference, but they've got to be back in Parliament the next day. Yeah, I get it.
1: I still think there's other ways to travel. Well, of course, I, I, I of take course. But I mean, if the idea that he can't do it, but business can do it, that's why exactly. you everything about Kirsten Palmer. But exactly. back to Sadiq Khan. Um, so my very first time that I got to ask questions to Sadiq Khan, I asked him about Citizens Assembly in London, the idea of bringing people's voices into City Hall. His response to me was very telling. He said that I'd just been elected by millions of people across London and I shouldn't be in danger of making myself redundant. And I think that's a real top-down approach. And that's not bashing Sadiq Khan. I think we see that from lots of politicians. It's that idea that we have the answers and we are going to implement them on you. The Green Party approach is completely different to that. It's let's go to communities. Let's have grassroots politics. Let's make sure everyone's voice is heard. Make sure everyone's seen. Everyone should have a place at the table.
0: Do do you think... Quickly, do you think Keir Starmer opposes PR? Because I think the argument often is, oh, he'd like to do it, but it's low on the priorities. You know, we have to. That's how they dress it up, right? There's the yeah. cost of living crisis. We can't do PR. It's a middle class issue. Blah, blah. I think. I think he he supports first past the post because it gives Labour all the Tories a massively inflated majority. And it means that if you do win power, you're not really properly scrutinized.
1: Where where do you think he sits in that debate? Well, I think you've given me the answer. I think he supports 1st Party. You think so? Okay. For that exact reason. I'd also just add that the conversation I have most frequently with people, which is starting to change, is people saying, oh, I really want to join the Green Party or I really want to vote Green, but I need to get the Tories out. And that's, I'm really clear, my number one mission between now and the general election is to take that argument head on. And I think ultimately the answer here is that it's not good enough, again, just to be Tory light. And actually, we've demonstrated over and over again, particularly at local elections, that even under first pass for post, Greens can and do win. And sometimes we've had huge swings and major majorities. Places like South Tyneside, Burnley, you don't get much more Labour heartland than this. And we've demonstrated that actually, even in those areas, you, you when you campaign to elect uh, Green MPs or, sorry, Green councillors, people want Green councillors, the job now is to move that local swing to a national swing. And that, that's a big job. But I think ultimately, you know, the reason, the fact that first pass for post is the obstacle here is exactly why Keir Starmer (laughs) wants to maintain first pass for post. You very rarely meet anyone who's very enthusiastic about Keir Starmer. You meet people who are enthusiastic about getting rid of the Tories. My argument to those people are you're essentially being held trapped by him. You're being held trapped by the same system that he is the one that is maintaining along with this conservative government. So actually, the best thing you could do to hold a future Labour government to account is to have more Green MPs. And I think that's a vital role that the Green Party are increasingly going to play in the next few years.
0: So the two seats you're really looking at are Bristol Central and Waveney Valley? Yeah. One is a Labour stronghold. It's presently Bristol West, which has a 30,000 majority, basically, for Thangham Debonair. Now, for people who are sceptical about that, in 2015, you guys were 5,000 behind the, the Labour candidate and you have overwhelming majority of councillors in the wards that will be in that constituency. An amazing fact, which I learned from one of your colleagues recently, is that the green vote is highest in places with a higher concentration of university students and graduates, and the highest concentration of that in any constituency in the country will be this one. So, yes, 30,000 majority looks bad, but actually there's a, there's a bigger possibility that Thangam loses that seat, or it's at least very competitive,
1: than may appear. So you've got there... Can I, can I also add to that? For a reason why I think Carla Dania should be the favourite is there are 20 council seats in Bristol West. Yeah. 17 of them are already green. Yeah. Now, I accept people sometimes vote differently nationally to how they do locally. Yeah. But I think there's a clear message there that the local elections, if everyone votes the same way, then Carla Dania is your new MP. And the biggest thing is, is the Tories are nowhere near bristol central or bristol west they're not going to win there so if you vote for carla the worst case scenario is you get the labour mp you would have got anyway the best case scenario bristol gets to be proud of its new green mp that will hold the labour government to account Uh, carla's been incredible at declaring a climate emergency the first person in europe she's a renewables engineer she is a firecracker of ideas and thoughts and she would not let keir starmer get away with anything and i think for people in bristol to be able to vote green and have carla in parliament if you can hear the excitement i just think it's a a genuinely really exciting prospect, and what I just hope is Carla gets enough airtime that people in Bristol can see and hear from her because I think the argument makes itself.
0: Well, Carla Denyer is um, an engineer, yeah, by, by trade, as you just said. Sham Berry is as well. Basically, she's done a history and
1: metallurgy. Me, me, yeah, applied. She's going to laugh at the fact I couldn't say it. Yeah, um, okay. applied science.
0: Yeah, and then Caroline Russell, I believe, is also an engineer, has an engineering background. Right. Yes. So you've got lots of basically women coming from STEM who seem to be joining the Greens. Now that that makes sense to an extent because obviously you you know about the sort of quantitative um, data surrounding the climate crisis, et cetera, et cetera. And I I find that super interesting. And I I think it says something both probably good and bad about the kinds of people you're drawing in. Obviously, to be a mass party, you're going to need more blue collar candidates, et cetera. By the way, not that the Labour Party has those guys, but ideally you would. Let's then go to Adrian because he is in Waveney. Right, is that how I say it? Waveney, yeah, Waveney Valley, it's Waveney Mid- Valley. plus Sorry. some extra areas. No, I've never been. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I look forward to going up there because it will be an interesting um, constituency in the next election. Here is the thing, though: one's a Labour stronghold, lots of graduates, very young, very metropolitan. One is a bit older, very Tory. Those are your two. Let's say you hold Brighton Pavilion, not guaranteed, but let's just say you do. There is a real chance you have a very mixed message going into the next general election, isn't there? Because you are going to have a message for these guys and.
1: Bristol, and these guys in Waveney Valley. And frankly, they're really different electorates. Well, I think it comes back to exactly what I was saying. When you focus on that positive vision, I think that's a positive vision anyone can get behind. So cleaner air, green spaces dealing with, with gender inequality, tackling social justice issues. I think these issues are issues that matter to everyone. And I think 13 years of a Conservative government, people are absolutely sick of them. They're out of touch, out of ideas, out of time. And the Labour opposition aren't presenting anything. What was interesting in the recent local elections uh, in Mid-Suffolk, where Greens have won an outright majority for the very first time, again, we won the popular share vote across that constituency. So if people vote nationally the same way they did locally. That's another Green MP. What was really interesting is turnout went up. Now, the turnout going up has been suggested by one pollster, Ben Walker, I think, that um, it wasn't that it was conservative voters turning green or even Labour voters turning green. What was happening was people who weren't voting at all Mm. because they would never vote for the Conservative government, but they just didn't fancy the Labour Party either, started to vote. Now, this isn't necessarily true. We've got to watch causation and correlation because often when something is highly contested, Uh, turnout goes up anyway. But I do think there's an interesting thing there about where those votes are coming from. Knocking on the doors in Waveney Valley, I wasn't delivering any message that was particularly different to a message I was delivering in Bristol West. It was still focusing on community, on what the local community wanted, on a Green New Deal, on a Conservative government, on the disaster that was Liz Truss, on Rishi Sunak, who doesn't seem to have any ideas. And then the Labour Party that have rolled back on one of their fundamental commitments, a 28 billion-pound climate Green New Deal. That was not enough money in the first place. But again, another U-turn from Keir Starmer. That's a gift for you guys, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't say it was a gift because essentially... Politically, it's obviously dreadful in terms of addressing the climate crisis, but politically that is a gift for the Green Party. I really wouldn't go with gift, and that's not me being political. It's just that I really think there's going to be a Labour government, and all of us need a Labour government to take the climate crisis seriously. In terms of a space opening up, I think Keir Starmer, um, without a doubt, has totally failed to take on the austerity narrative. He's totally failed to stand with striking workers. Uh, he's been anti-migrant. He's talked about, or him and that Cooper have talked about tagging asylum seekers. Uh, this is one of the things that most agrees me about Keir Starmer. On the issue of migration, we need more than ever a positive, inclusive story that talks about the benefits that migrants bring to society, not just for humanitarian reasons, although those are the strongest reasons, but even on economic terms. If you go into the National Health Service, the person who serves you or treats you is more likely to be an immigrant than someone in front of you in the queue. You never hear the Labour Party making these arguments. And I think that is a fundamental dereliction of duty when we see a Tory party go further to the right. Did Keir Starmer go further to the left? Why should that that be celebrated, though?
0: Why is it a good thing? Obviously, it's welcome. But surely in an ideal world, we wouldn't be bringing in nurses from low GDP countries. The World Health Organization has said to us, Britain... Please stop taking nurses from Nigeria. The World Health Organization said that it's not a right-wing talking point. Yeah, and we're failing. To, so I, I understand this is a bit of a detour, but I understand and I, I agree with you about the, they're not they're not they don't praise immigration enough and the diversity of the country enough. But on something like that, you know what I mean? Keir Starmer would say, "Well, actually, no. I think we should be training more nurses and doctors domestically, and we shouldn't be taking them from poorer countries." And by the way, he's not he's not saying how to fund it, of course, but. Uh, and by the way that happened that's probably one of the few things he would say which is quite popular with the electorate well so so, so
1: why, why why pull him up on that in particular well, brain drain is an issue. So the, the premise of your question is absolutely right. We need to make sure that we're not taking doctors and nurses or anyone with expertise from countries that really badly need them. We want to be training people here. But the point is, we haven't been doing that. So we should applaud and celebrate the people that we have here and make sure their contribution is welcome. I met recently with the Royal College of Nurses with, with Pat Cullen and various nurses from various groups within. I spoke to this one nurse, Patience, uh, who'd come over from, from Africa. She'd been working in the country and she talked about the package that was presented to her to come to England, to have this brilliant life as as a nurse, to be able to contribute to society. She said she's faced racism, inequality, and has felt that her contribution has not been met at all. Now, she's been brave and she's speaking out about that. And I'm really pleased she is. But just think about the amount of people who have come over from countries who feel grateful to be here, who are being treated like crap, but also feel like, oh, I, I can't challenge that. And especially when I turn on the media and I see people talking negatively about migration, like There isn't another phrase other than that, that breaks my heart to see that. And just one other thing, and this is so important. In fact, if I say nothing else today, this is the most important thing for you to hear or your viewers. Um, I was, uh, on Tuesday, I was on strike uh, or joining a strike action with a union in London called United Voices of the Workers. This is 145 low-paid black and brown immigrants uh, that have come over to the UK and are working. Uh, There's seven sites. Amazon is one of them. Ogville, uh, London School of Economics, uh, the Department for Education, Sage, which is a care home uh, in in Barnet, Amazon and a school in Streatham and Clapham. So these are all low paid workers who are contributing to our society. They've been working throughout the pandemic. Some of them were carers, they were working every single day making sure that our community was safe. Some of these people are asking for a pay rise at the rate of inflation. Some of them are asking for ventilation in their staff room. Some of the most basic things you could ever ask for. Um, And just, they feel like they're being ignored. They feel like they're completely invisible in society. And on Tuesday, what we did was because at one site, for instance, there might be 10 cleaners. 10 cleaners on their own can't cause much noise. But when you all come together, 140 of them took an open tour bus around London to each other's strike sites to say, we're not going to stand for this. It's not just about pay rise. It's about being treated with dignity, respect, and equality. And I think we're seeing more and more of that action happen. And from the people I spoke to in the street, they were shocked about how these people were being treated. Of course. And you would not get this from the right-wing media. You would hear that these people would be shouted at or you should be grateful. I didn't hear those responses in the street. I heard, this is outrageous that these human beings aren't being given the most basic dignity mm. in 2023. And we talk about public sector strikes a lot, and that's right. And you know, I absolutely defend public sector workers workers' right to strike too, and have been striking a lot with them too. But I think there is this invisible sector of society that has been working so hard and suddenly during the pandemic, they were suddenly visible because we were locked up in our homes. And these were the people keeping our cities moving. And I think we need to recognize that. I said to them yesterday, I'm doing this interview today, is there anything that I could ask people to do? And they said, donate to the strike fund would be the number one thing. So if you'll excuse the cheekiness for getting people to check out the United Voices of the uh, World, would be a really good thing for people to do.
0: Maybe we'll put that in the
1: description. <laughs> maybe, you know, Novara's politics isn't,
0: we're not, we're not entirely right wing. You know, maybe there's a small chance. Um, Sticking with this thing you said about the the different um, uh, the different constituencies actually sort of finding the same message appealing, I can totally see that. Everybody wants a better high street. Everyone wants better air quality. Everyone wants more livable streets, although if you put an LTN, they start to sort of have a panic attack. But in the abstract, people tend to like these things. But even LTNs are more
1: popular than the media present. Oh, no, of course. Not to tangent as team No, no, but- of course. <laughs> and
0: I, I think the, the thing is, I think what's happened is that different electoral demographics want to do things at different paces. yeah. And I think where they've been rejected is where perhaps they've been it's just been done a little bit too quickly and enthusiastically. But I think generally people like them as an idea. I think that's indisputable actually. But quickly on this thing where you said they, they like the same stuff. I mean, it must be because you guys, for instance, we weren't going to Brexit too much because people know my views on Brexit, you know. Um, you're very much still like we're a party of Remain. It must be quite hard in Waveney Valley, which voted to to leave and we, we have left. It's not really a live political issue anymore. But that they clearly want to hear something different on, say, something like Brexit to Bristol Central, where there'll be lots of people going, oh, yeah, Keir Starmer, he backed Brexit. That's why I'm backing you guys. And, and that's a legitimate thing to say. But then, of course, that's a very different thing to what the, the new voter in Waveney Valley will say, which is, I'm so glad that, you know, we we had the referendum and it's being observed and it wasn't overturned, like people were saying in 2019. So, yes, of course, they'll agree on some things. But as you get more and more successful, there are really big divisions and distinctions in that electoral base no?
1: I think that's why you have to be crucial Uh, it's crucial that you hold true to your values and I'm really clear that my values and they align with the Green Party values which is why I'm deputy leader uh, that we are a pro-internationalist party that support the European Union and would rejoin as soon as is practically possible. Now you say it's not a live issue anymore but actually when you look at polling people have a lot of Brexit regret. Now I'm not suggesting we rip open that discussion.
0: To to clarify it was a live issue in 2019 because there was a We hadn't left until 2020. True, that's fair enough. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We're not
1: rejoining again tomorrow. I totally accept No, no,
0: but also in 2019, we hadn't yet left the EU. So we have now formally left, is my point, but of course, yeah.
1: I think there has to be things in politics that you're willing for people to not agree with you on. But I think people can still admire and still vote for your authenticity, for the fact that you clearly believe in what you're saying and that you will continue to have that conversation. I think it's a thing in local politics for certain is the idea that consultation is often notification. So local councils say, oh, we're going to consult, but actually they're telling people how things are being done. I think in the Green Party, what Braille we're working them. on- Well, quite, exactly. And I think in the Green Party, what we're working on, and we have not got it perfect and we will get it wrong in places, is to really genuinely consult and to look at what are those future models of politics that really involve- grassroots democracy that sometimes involves people telling thing, telling you things you don't agree with. Now, that does not mean you change your values. It doesn't mean you change your position. It means you've got some more work to do to carry on that negotiation and work out, is it that you need to bring people to your position? Is it that your position can move nearer to where these people are, but still remains in your values? And I think those conversations are all important conversations. And I think that's been missing in our politics, like genuine nuance and complexity about how you know it's not one answer fits all. But in terms of our values, like I couldn't be clearer that, you know, uh, facing the climate crisis, being pro LGBT, being uh, pro migrant, standing with striking workers, challenging austerity, these things are not changeable and they will never change. And I understand that means some people will not vote Green. And I think that's where you have to go. Okay, well those are but our. Those values. are
0: civil. Those are civil rights issues. But rejoining the EU is different, right? So like, even I would be. I, I voted Labour in the May elections. I have a. Perfectly. Full disclosure, my wife's Labour councillor. But regardless, there's there's a good local Labour Party, as there are in many parts of the country, by the way, despite the leadership trying its best to sort of destroy them. Um, And what I would say is, I could be tempted to vote Green. But if there was a real chance of the Greens winning in my constituency, and I thought, oh, if there's five Green MPs, and it's a hung parliament, we will literally have to re-litigate Brexit again, I wouldn't vote Green. And even though I agree with you on 95% of the stuff, because I would say we have so much to sort out, the idea of relitigating a constitutional crisis like that for another five years and basically doing bugger all like we did between 2016 and 2020, that would be really concerning for me. I mean, because rejoin is a really strong position. You're not saying, and I think this is a sensible position, and I could be wrong, and I'm sure your voters disagree with this. Customs union, freedom
1: of movement, but rejoin is huge. It would be it would be harder to rejoin than it was to leave. Well, I'll take your question full on, but I'm going to give a caveat, which sounds like a get out of jail free card, but it's not. It's just the truth, which is our policy is actually to rejoin the customs union and to rejoin as soon as is practically possible. I would say that aligns with your exact question, but I'm still happy to take your question on as a thought experiment. Mm. I think the idea that there's five green MPs and we manage to reopen, rejoin, or that being our very first priority. Well, that
0: will be the Tory attack line, right? Uh, yeah, for sure. If, if you become successful, that will be the attack line.
1: Exactly. So um, I don't think that is you know, the road that we're going down, but I accept it as, a, as an answer that I have to give an answer to. I think that's about making the argument about how damaged our country has been about Brexit. I think it's about pointing out that we were lied to as a country. That doesn't mean people didn't know what they were voting for. I don't think it means... Uh, You know, I always worry that those lines sound like you're calling people stupid. I think lots of people did know what they were voting for. But I think even in its own terms of what people thought they were voting for, they thought they were voting for renewed economic success about controlling our borders. I think they wanted to see better infrastructure, uh, better schools, better doctor surgery. People aren't seeing any of that. What they're seeing is a society that is being... um, destroyed at its very core with its infrastructure. They're seeing a society where the rich are getting richer and people who are living in poverty are even poorer. They're seeing a society where um, mothers can't afford to buy nappies, so they're stealing them and then ending up in prison. We're literally criminalizing poverty. Now, not all of that is Brexit. we were on that road anyway. Not all of that is pandemic. We were on that road anyway, but I think these things have all exacerbated it. But I don't think there's a single factor that has been stronger recently than Brexit. And we've seen how much damage that has done to our economy. And I think it's vital that we call that and we d- we don't shy away from that. Is that politically convenient? No, it's much more convenient to talk about lots of other things because Brexit is still divisive. But I think no one in public life should shy away from saying David Cameron and Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson more than anyone, lied to us. We just had a 30,000 word document this week that told us everything we already knew. He was a corrupt, deceitful man that lied to parliament and by effect lied to every single person in the country. I don't think we should now just wave that decision through because it happened a few years ago. It's very recent memory. I don't want to immediately re-enter that argument, but I think it's definitely time for a conversation to say, this country has been lied to. We've all been through turmoil. We've all been through divisive chaos. We've seen culture wars be faced. Let's take a deep breath, but let's have a conversation about these important fundamental issues for our society.
0: That's a, a really, really good persuasive answer. But how would you? So how would you rejoin them? Would it be a referendum or would you just rejoin? How, do, how would it work?
1: Well, I think it's a good question that no one's asked me before, which is why I'm taking a moment to think. Um, I think it would have to be a referendum. I think right. the idea that you um, have a referendum and then you leave would mean, yeah, in fact, I don't even need to think about it much longer. It would clearly have to be a referendum. Otherwise, I'd say it's a democratic injustice. I think there's um, the arguments about the people's votes being a democratic injustice. I didn't buy, but I think there is some truth to lots of people felt like they hadn't been heard. They voted and then suddenly lots of progressive politicians, including myself, so I'm not blaming anyone else, were saying uh, we need to have a vote on the terms of the deal. Now, I think that was justifiable, but I can also understand why people felt like they hadn't been listened to. I think we can't continue that road. And if we did join the EU, we'd, we'd have to have a referendum. Can
0: you see Can you see the Brexiteers' argument, which is, you know, I think it was the Nice Treaty, or maybe it was the Lisbon Treaty, you know, in France, they keep on getting referenda on it until they vote the right way. Same in Ireland, same in the Netherlands. They, you have to keep on voting until you vote the right way. And it's the same on Brexit that was the, that was the liberal position and i am I'm, I'm you know i have liberal values but that was the broadly liberal position which was you will have you will, we will keep having referenda until you vote the right way that's basically
1: the position isn't it I think the position was I'm sympathetic to the customs. Yeah, yeah, no, (laughs) I I totally get that. The first thing I'd say is that's coming from a Brexiteer, then it's kind of ironic because they wanted to take that control. They supposedly wanted more democracy. And actually, I would say having more votes, more elections and more referendum, if you have the belief and strength of your argument, then you shouldn't be scared of those votes. You should win But it only goes one way, isn't it?
0: So if we'd voted to remain, you wouldn't have said, OK, let's keep having more referendum because the the issue would be settled. Because because Remain lost, will we... Well, I think it would have been
1: settled for a few years. But I think if then polling had shown a clear indication that people were unhappy with the decision, then I wouldn't have necessarily been making That's the argument because I want to remain. So I'm not going to be disingenuous and say I would have made that argument. So even if even if remain had won, you would have been
0: open to the argument that say... Brexit Party or UKIP keep on winning European elections, Nigel Farage keeps on going, and be question time, you would have been open to the possibility of another referendum, say, 10, 15 years after that.
1: Totally. Particularly in a first-pass-for-post system, I'd say if there was proportional representation and UKIP had some representation, it would be a different argument. Because yeah. you'd say, well, they can make that representation in Parliament. People say this to me all the time about PR. They said, you might get people like Nigel Farage elected or extremists. And I'm like, there's extremists at the heart of our government. That's what's happened Then the first-pass-for-post. Is, you know, disinfectant is the best transparency. And actually, the best disinfectant is actually making Making sure people have representation. I don't want those people in Parliament, but actually, if they represent enough people, and that's millions of voters, then of course they should have a voice in the House of Commons. We should have more strength in the power of arg- arguments and the belief in democracy to be able to defeat people at the ballot box rather than rigging the system.
0: Would you campaign alongside Nigel Farage to get PR? Let's say there's a big campaign for PR, and he's there on the phone, they're going, Zach, we want you and Nigel on the barge at Tower
1: Bridge, three o'clock. Um, so I'm a pluralist. I believe working with other people and there's lots of other people I would work with whose views I don't agree with. So I'm trying to think of someone in the Tory cabinet and I can't think of one straight away, but I'm sure they are. Nigel Farage for me is a different level though. I think there's been clear racism and xenophobia, which means even though you can hear the strength of how much I believe in proportional representation, I wouldn't stand on the same platform as Nigel Farage. But he's Farage.
0: a powerful ally for PR, surely. I mean, he is. he's reaching the
1: parts that the Green Party can't reach. He's an incredible speaker and he has some sort of charisma that doesn't appeal to me, but does clearly appeal to lots of people in the country. I think you'd be a fool to not want Nigel Farage making an argument that you agree with but that is different to wanting to share a platform with them I think that's just as basic as being an LGBT person for instance comments he made about AIDS and people with HIV in yeah. those election debates I don't think those are forgivable and I think people's politics can change you know I talked earlier about being in the Liberal Democrats before I was in the Greens I don't think people should be punished for decisions they've made in the past but I think the extent that Nigel Farage has gone and the toxicity within his politics would just mean he's not someone I'd want to share a Because this is with. the thing
0: with PR, if there was a referendum, I could see it winning. I don't think there should be a referendum on PR, by the way. I think it's a daft thing to do, but I, I, if there was a referendum on PR, I could see it winning. Even handsomely, if you had real collaboration between people like yourself and, and people who, frankly, you would never otherwise work with. Somebody like Nigel Farage, Caroline Lucas, Liberal Democrats, part of the Labour Party. It's, it's a social majority. Of the public, but also of people in civil society too. If you include the right. But then of course you get the argument like you've made here, well, I I wouldn't share a platform with them. And I think I think that that would be the thing that stops a successful campaign for, for, for proportional representation. I'm not saying you're wrong, by the way. No, I think what you're saying is really interesting. And that, that, I mean. in, that in itself brings up some of the tensions of PR, right? Because like you say, with PR, we'd have more people like Nigel
1: Farage in Parliament, which we just would, it would be, you know, and some some people don't want that. And I think I have this experience more than most UK politicians, because I'm elected for London Assembly, which is elected under PR. So I frequently have to work with Labour, who I work with more often than not, but also Liberal Democrats and Conservatives, where we have to come to consensus positions. So actually, we literally sit all around the table in a room, and we argue and debate until we come to a Compromise, and I think often that compromise represents for people who electors better than even if my decision, as much as I would love it in its purest form, got chosen. I think it's actually really healthy that you work through something and you end up with a document. So we've got an organisation like Make Votes Matter, who I'd also give a shout out there, the non-party political, cross-party campaign for uh, proportional representation in the House of Commons. Uh, they would work uh, with reform, as far as I understand, or the likes of Nigel Farage, uh, particularly around strategy and how you might do this. And it's not to say I wouldn't, uh, you know. It, include people who work for the Green Party to get in the same room with people who work with other parties that I don't agree with to talk about strategy. I do think, though, where you put your face and your voice is important in terms of your reputation and what you're saying to people who back you and support you. And I think it's important to say, even though this is the issue that I care about more than anything in politics, and people might call that privilege, they might say, what, you don't care more about policing or racial injustice or about the war in Ukraine? I care deeply about those things. But until we have a sustainable electoral system that means we can change those things. We don't really have a democracy. So PR has to come first. But even though that's how much I care about PR, I still would not want to stand on a stage with a fascist because I think... So Nigel Farage is a fascist?
0: (laughs) But I mean, obviously I'm not suggesting you go and stand on a platform with Nick Griffin. I mean, that's
1: historically the line. I think it's... So the, the time for me, I mean, there's a few times, but one time that's just come in my mind, I've not thought about what Nigel Farage has said recently, which has been nice for me. But one thing that jumps in my mind is during the Brexit referendum, when he endorsed that breaking point poster, which had 200, 300 brown faces that weren't even from the European Union, stood in a queue. He was appealing to the worst uh, instincts of people's racism, of scapegoating the minority community, of saying the reason why you don't have a, a functional NHS or a house to live in or a social home is not because of 13 years of austerity because of a conservative government that don't care. It's because of those people who live in countries like Afghanistan, Yemen, Sudan that have absolutely nothing to do with the European Union. He um, inflamed those. He was happy to do so. He's shown no regret in doing so. He is do- he's willing to do whatever he needs to do to win. I'm frustrated even talking about now like, but the sooner he could go away, the better. <clears throat> <throat> is. Isn't that the point, though, Zach? Which is what a powerful statement,
0: image, statement to say. I disagree with this guy on everything. I think he's wrong about a great deal. I, th- I, th- I think he's deeply offensive. I think he's even misled the public on certain things, and I think he should be held accountable for that. However, we live in a democracy. We both participate in a national community, which is also a democratic community. And we want to change how we do that to make it more democratic and to empower people. I think, in a way, I mean, I agree with everything. I don't agree with everything. I think he's a fascist. I think he's an ultra-nationalist, which have their own downsides, yeah, that's right? A fair, fair distinction. Yeah, and I think that, that they, they, I think you need to give things their appropriate names to, to 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 be able to mitigate them as somebody on the left or a progressive. But surely that in itself would be such a powerful sort of spectacle, wouldn't it?
1: I think if he was elected, it's a different conversation Okay. because there's kind of a, um, even if I really wouldn't like that, there's a kind of appropriateness to it and an electoral mandate. I'm always wondering what Nigel Farage's electoral mandate was. That's super interesting. Um, And UKIP had half the councillors that Greens did, and they were literally on question time once every few weeks. And Nigel Farage seemed to have a (coughs) permanent seat. The Greens were on, I think, once a year, sometimes once in two years. And I think that's a real issue, both in our media and in our electoral politics. I also should say, um, I don't know if this makes me a hypocrite. No, it definitely doesn't. (laughs) Um, I would say that. If someone else wanted to do it, I wouldn't necessarily criticize them for it. It's just a bit like a bad smell. It's It's personal choice. It's not something I want to do. You know, there's lots of other places I want to put my energy and time and effort. If someone feels like they could stand with him and do that, then I would get it. I would think it was a questionable decision, but I wouldn't condemn them for it. I don't understand I, why I
0: really thinking. like your argument around if they were elected. Because it's right. so true. Because also you can say, look, I don't like this person, but I, they are an institutional representative of, of yeah. 60,000, 70,000 people. I have to respect those people. Yeah, And this person is their voice in, a, in, an elected legislati- uh, uh, in an elected legislature. I think that's a really good
1: answer. I think we see that in the European Parliament too, where, um, again, through PR. Um, I went to a conference recently, which was with all the leadership of Green Parties across Europe. Um, a really interesting conference, actually, that things like Montenegro has a Green Prime Minister. Obviously, there's Greens in cabinet in Germany, Scotland. Uh, so it was great to be with these Green cabinet ministers around Europe and, and see how politics could be. But they were talking about having to work with either ultra-nationalists or fascists. And I accept there is a distinction. And I think the reason why I paused with all of that is, you're right, we've got to be careful about banding words around because it means it loses its meaning when it needs to have that meaning. Um, But I think when you look at the likes of Suella Braverman, for instance, we're we're getting to the territory where throwing these words around is not hyperbole. Like if you're looking to create a more authoritarian state, there's also huge issues with the police, trust in the police, racism, misogyny, homophobia. You're looking to give them more powers, less powers for people to protest or speak out. If that's not fascism, then I'm not quite sure what the meaning of the word is. And I say that as someone who's Jewish, who uh, feels within my personal and cultural history, the deep meaning of fascism and the fact that word should not be thrown about. But also, you don't want to be in this place where you sit politely and liberally, not using the word because you don't want to disrupt things. But actually, you call a spade a spade, and when something needs to be called out, I think it needs to be called out. So you would call Suela Suela Breverman a fascist, or you would say we're on that trajectory? I think we're on that trajectory. I think um, it might be as simple as the bill's only just gone through, so we've not seen the effects of it yet. And I'd love to think in her better nature that... There might be um, police, you know, who do a huge overreach over a protest. We see horrendous uh, things going on the TV and radio. And she goes, I've made a mistake. Let's repeal this. Let's do it differently. All the evidence points to the fact that's not going to happen. But I think if we're not in that area, things continue to get worse. And she defends that decision. then I think it would be fair enough to call her a fascist. I think also, actually, as simply as well, the way they're treating the GRT community is fascism. The fact that they're Um, talking about seizing the vehicles when they're not talking about it, they are now seizing the vehicles that they live in. Those aren't vehicles, they're homes. So they are whipping up again, scapegoating a minority community that already aren't represented in society, taking away the homes, blaming them, not allowing them to to get support in other ways. And again, I I think we're in fascism.
0: You've talked a lot about um, social justice. Obviously a big part of social justice is is housing justice. A big part of the social crisis we have in this country is the housing crisis. You want to build lots of homes You want to address the housing crisis and yet one of the criticisms of the Greens which I think carries some weight is that in the councils you are in, you tend to reject
1: housing applications. So you're you're NIMBYs, not in my backyarders. So this is an absurd objection, but I'm really glad to talk about it. And this is one of the times I've been proudest of our kind of uh, communications and messaging because uh, we've heard this kind of rumbling before the local elections, this idea that we're NIMBYs. So we thought rather than try and hide from it or be defensive on it, let's put it front and center of our campaign. So our local messaging was about the right homes, at the right prices, at the right places. It's quite a mouthful <laughs> when you say it on live TV. Now, this has to be more than a slogan. So let me break it down. Right homes mean when you're building homes, they have to be passive house standard, they have to be retrofitted, they have to be decent homes. Far too many homes that we're seeing go up quickly because property developers are worrying about the bottom line rather than actually about affordable housing, and we'll come on to affordable in a second. Uh, they're, they're really badly insulated. We're in a cost of living crisis or an inequality crisis. We know the cheapest bill is the one you don't <coughs> have to pay. So a mass home insulation program is absolutely vital. That's both building homes that are insulated already, but insulating the homes that are there. So about the right homes, first of all. Right prices. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, particularly around renters i was a renter for 10 11 years before i became a property guardian for about 10 years um, i moved oh, wow. where was this uh, in london You're uh, a property guardian in london yeah i was a property guardian oh, up until very recently actually um, and i was moving place constantly i loved being a property guardian sometimes i was living with like 20 25 people in kind of big spaces big community spaces where we're eating together um a proper sense of community now i love that um, but that shouldn't be for everyone and it won't be for everyone. And the fact that so many people I was living with have been pushed into it because of a housing crisis, as opposed to the reason why I was doing it, which was both to save a bit of money, but also I genuinely enjoyed the community, is a shocking indictment of our, our housing system. So when I talk about the right price, when we talk about affordable homes, affordable needs to be linked to the median wage of that area because there's mm. lots of different geographical areas, including giving local authorities the opportunity or the the powers to be able to bring in rent controls where there's an already overinflated rental market. And then it's the right place. Now, this is the key bit, because I would always avoid building homes on Greenfield, uh, sorry, Greenbelt sites. And people will go, well, that's nimbish. Well, no, it's not. There's an ecological and biodiversity emergency. And as much as we need new homes, and we'll carry on talking about that, we also need to protect nature. And I think it's this nonsense argument that by solving the housing crisis, you absolutely, you know, destroy the environmental crisis will make it much worse because we talk about the climate emergency, but actually the ecological emergency is the one that comes first. If we lose our bees, if we lose our biodiversity, we're absolutely screwed and we're we're on that trajectory. Now the Campaign for Rural England did research that shows there's 1.16 million homes that could be built on brownfield sites. Mm. Those are the places to go first. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of empty homes across the UK that aren't (coughs) being used. So I think the argument always at the local level is one, this is consultation, not notification. Two, we need to be really clear that we need to build these homes So where people are being nimbers, We do need to challenge that and we do need to push back. And I have lots of examples of where we've done that. But most importantly, we need to prioritize brownfields. And I can give an example of this. Um, In Ealing, there's an area called Warren Farm, um, the campaigners there are in opposition to a Labour council who are trying to build, build um, a sports, uh, sports facility on Warren Farm. Now, Warren Farm has skylarks, or a landmark species. All that means is when you get, you know, when you see skylarks, it means there's lots of other species there too. Mm. So if you do something that means the skylarks go, you lose all the other species too. Now, Labour Ealing have attacked me and those campaigners by saying you don't want sports facilities, you don't care about um, people who need to, to um, do sport. Massively care about them, but even under their own proposals, there are eight other sites in e-link where they could put those sports facilities that are on brownfield sites that are derelict. So then the question is: is why do you want to take this green belt land? And very often this is backdoor. You build the sports facility, you then destroy it, you then build homes to property developers. um Other people can join the dots about why councillors might do that and what jobs they might go into after they're being councillors. But I'm being careful not to uh, to step over a legal line. But I think. One thing I would say is that absolutely needs to be rules about when people stop being councillors or any elected representatives, what jobs or industries do they go into? I think it's clearly problematic if you've been in the housing cabinet on a council and then you stop being a councillor and the next day you start working for a property development company. That's not you know, imagination. Those kind of things go on. And I think those things need to be called out. But back to your question, I think it's about making sure that we're putting brownfield uh, first. I have
0: to say I agree with you that the the whole green belt thing. So we, you know, we, let's build in the green belt. They're all wrong. It's a knee jerk response, and it feels like it's been driven by a lobby. Absolutely, the housing lobby because it has the highest rate of return. It's the least effort. You, once you've gotten over this this regulatory barrier of being able to build there, you don't have the problem you do have you have with brownfield sites, right? Which is, hello, we'd like to build this new unit, two hundred people, and it's back in the middle of your community. Which obviously some people will object to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera just much easier to do, and I love brownfield sites. You go to any, you go to any town or city in this country, walk down the high street, it looks like shit, right? And you think, wh- why aren't these like beautiful Art Deco buildings or Victorian buildings? Why isn't that a block of like 2 two three bedroom flats for, and for Paris- young families to live in? We don't, and, we, and instead we're saying, no, let's build barrett homes on the green belt and fuck the
1: animals. You think oh, this doesn't make any sense? And in Paris, they're doing amazing things where they're retrofitting kind of old estates to build genuine, affordable, uh, well sustainable. Um, council homes or social homes and they're being proud of it too and they're getting top architects to do that. So you have these sites that people can be proud of And we're just absolutely missing that imagination. But when we talk about lobby, I know we're coming on to nuclear in a second, but I think there's similar arguments here. But for me, they are anyway, in terms of I think we always need to look at what is the money pushing these arguments? Where is money going to? Where's it coming from? That's not being a conspiracy theorist. Sometimes there will be legitimate arguments why, um, you know, a Greenbelt site isn't always green, It not always biodiverse. And there may be elements where actually it should be a brownfield site. But if we're talking about general principles and, you know, that's always a problem you need to go site by site bespoke by bes- you know bespoke you always need to look at the local community and what is the site? I think the principle of go for the brownfield first, make good affordable homes put them in the right place, then that just seems common sense and I think people can get on board with it. Um, of course, people will continue to attack us as nimbys because it's an easy attack line. Um, you can always find a council somewhere that has made a poor decision or a council that's made a poor decision. Um, part of my job as a leadership team is to be on top of those decisions and try and persuade people other ways.
0: Do you accept that we have a problem though in this country where, where residents, particularly owner-occupiers, think they can block everything? Like I see this a lot, even where I live, there'll be a business, there'll, there'll be a planning application to start a bar. Right, and they'll shut at eleven o'clock, and it'll be a relatively busy street, and there'll be homeowners. Nope. And you think there's barely any businesses opening at the moment. Who do you think? Who do you think is is going to be employed? How do you think business rates are going to be paid? How do you think VAT is going to be collected? Like, so there just seems this default amongst particularly older owner occupiers. I don't mean to be ages, but that's my experience of it. That might be inaccurate. It might not be representative of the wider situation. Who, who basically just don't want anything to be built. No, 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 no. I remember it was a Lib Dem. It wasn't one of you guys. He he had a leaflet ahead of the local elections and it was like, I stopped this. We blocked this. We said no to this. And that now increasingly is politics in, in many
1: places. And the worry is that more greens will mean more of that. Well, I've seen the Lib Dem canvas sheet recently where they've been going into one of the places with a by-election and saying, Are there any future developments that you want to block. So they're literally canvassing to look at things that they can oppose. I mean, that's that's pretty grim. But to, to, to push back on your question a little bit, I uh, don't think it's a problem that people have a democratic right to oppose things. I think the problem is the privilege that that often comes with, as opposed to the people in society who don't have that right or don't have that representation or don't have that voice. So I think, to, uh, for one of a better term, it's about leveling up. It's not about taking away some people's rights. It's about making sure people's rights are equal. So let is me that, give an is example. That, is that
0: true though? I mean, look, because sometimes the, the the detriment of one person is that you know it's basic utilitarianism. The discomfort this person feels is outweighed by the utility that's gained by you know several hundred people having homes.
1: Well, so one of the proudest things in London that I'm really proud that the Green Green Group did was Sean Berry uh, pushed for a long time for um, people living on estates to have resident ballots. So if they want to regenerate, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, mm. your estate, they used to just be able to come in, destroy your estate, which, by the way, is terrible for embodied carbon. So it's not just a social mm. justice issue, it's an environmental justice issue too. And then push you further out of the, you know London to a further, further zone and put you in new housing if you've got any new housing at all. And she lobbied Sadiq Khan for a long time to say, at least have a vote on this, like ask the people if this is what they want. Um, Credit to Sadiq Khan after a long long time pushing, he finally came around to doing this. But now we've got a new problem, which is you have these resident ballots, but um, councils pour lots and lots of money and propaganda into this area, promise for residents, lots of things that often aren't later delivered if they vote for regeneration. And so uh, something Sean's arguing for now is a resident empowerment fund. So this is saying, if these ballots are going on, this is money for residents who don't want it to be knocked down to have equal power in this relationship, to be able to put out leaflets or have a community event that talks about the reason why destroying your home is not the right thing to do. Now, that's not about saying buying votes. That's about saying, let's equalise the power struggles that are in these relationships. And I think far too often... Uh, people do have too much power and privilege, and it means that lots of people don't. Just to give you another example, Soho. I think it's very obvious that those roads should be pedestrianised. We saw it during the pandemic. We saw lots of restaurants pop up. It was this kind of beautiful moment of alfresco dining. Now, people argue that is just giving the road space to businesses, and I agree. Uh, Alfresco dining was lovely, but that's not the way it should be done. It shouldn't just be given to business, because then you're giving public space to businesses, and they can start to decide... Uh, who can or can't eat there, who can or can't sit there. And also there's issues around disability too. You have to make sure it's accessible. But the general principle that taking away the road and putting uh, trees there, putting grass there, just saying people shouldn't be driving through there is something that should be happening. But local residents are being very vocal against it. Now, the Labour councillors, when it was a Conservative council, seemed to think it was a good idea to pedestrianise Soho. It's now been a Labour council for over a year now There's no real talk about pedestrianising it. And they keep saying to me, you're not listening to residents' voices. I do think there's times where the argument is so strong, you know, Soho is symbolically a place where to have that pedestrianised, to not have traffic driving through it, to have a genuine community space, both for the LGBT community, but for Londoners, is an undeniable argument. And I do think that if people want to live in the very centre of London, but are going to complain about, you know, low levels of noise between 10pm and midnight, then that is an opportunity where i think as an elected councillor you have to be able to say there are other places you also, can live but but this space is, is is for what 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 this is for
0: you can afford a flat in central london I'm pretty sure you can afford secondary glazing, you know, or a white noise machine, or some earplugs. You know, just go to the boots chemist up the road.
1: It's true. So I'm being fair. Some of this is social housing. And I think there's then a genuine well, that, more discussion to have. But yeah, of course. If you, if you are wealthy enough to have bought your home, absolutely. I, I think I've encountered that,
0: that, right? And you just think, crikey, this has cost you a couple of grand. Because the and, and people say, well, that's not. You're not being fair. But here's the thing: listen to residents. What it means if you keep those roads open, and, and the reason why they'd oppose those roads being pedestrianised. It, it's because it has a direct impact on the value of their homes. Right. So what we're saying in this transaction of listen to residents is the value of their properties matter more than the revenues generated by successful businesses and creating a more hospitable living street for, for people to enjoy. That's what we're saying. There's a trade-off here, right? More economic activity, better quality of living for most people, or this select group of people. And I know you're saying it's some social housing too, but... 65% of renters vote, 95% of homeowner, owner-occupiers vote. It's, it's owner-occupiers, really. I was just trying to be fair to the council, know, so I, I agree of with course. everything you're saying. of course. Of <laughs> course. But the most, the, the most vocal, most active, engaged parts of the electorate are owner-occupiers. And that's basically, that's what they're saying. They want, my, I want my asset to be more valuable. So
1: everyone else. So I, I think we need to work out those incentives and change them a little bit. And, and it's it- also worth adding that the people breathing in the worst air from all that traffic are those people living in that area too. So they might be saving on the price of the home, but they're toxifying their lungs as well. So well, I think I mean, it's incredibly short term. It may
0: end up that you build some beautiful iconic, you know, uh, sort of streetscape, and actually it goes up. But that, I mean, that's the perception for them. It's around about this time on YouTube videos that you'll hear a sponsor. These are our sponsors. We want to thank X Y Z for making this video possible. Well, we don't do that here at Navarra Media. We don't have any sponsors. We have the occasional YouTube ad. But overwhelmingly, our revenues, the reason why and how we exist, is because of our supporters, people who want to see a different media for different politics, who want to see a people-powered media. Now, if you want to join them, can I suggest you go to navaramedia.com forward slash support and perhaps become a supporter too, because... These conversations that we have with elected politicians, with activists, with thinkers about solving the fundamental challenges of the 21st century are hugely important. I'm sure you think that too, otherwise you wouldn't be watching. So if you agree, why not support Navarro Media today? We recommend one hour's waged work a month. So if you earn £10 an hour, that would be £10 a month. We really appreciate it. Now, where we may disagree a bit more is on nuclear. Let's go for it. So why do you guys oppose nuclear? Yeah. We want to decarbonize by 2040. How the hell do we do that without nuclear energy?
1: Yeah, and I should say in London, we want to get there by 2030 as well. So you know, things need to move fast. I think the argument that people often make, and it's not the argument I'm going to make, but I'll at least present this argument, is that it's not safe, that it's dangerous. What do you do with the nuclear waste? I have um, sympathy for that argument, but I do think that if we invest in science and technology, we could probably get over those barriers. The reason why I don't support nuclear is because it's slow, it's expensive, Um, In 2010, 2015, we saw talk about nuclear or renewables. The Green Party made a strong argument for renewables about the fact that it's now eight or nine times cheaper than other alternatives, that a renewable industrial revolution is exactly the way to go forward. David Cameron said, let's cut the green crap. Let's invest in nuclear. We're still waiting for nuclear power stations to be built. It's a bit like if you started to build one now, you'd be creating the fax machine and hoping in 2040, 2050, that was going to be the front edge of cutting technology. We know that with renewable technology, and Dr. Mark Jacobson's written a brilliant book about this called uh, No More Miracles Needed, which says that if we invest in the capacity for renewables, we can run off 100% renewables. So we know the technology is there. We know it can be done with the investment and the political will. The only thing that's missing is the political will. I love <coughs> hearing Carla Daniel say regularly that she worked in renewables before she became a politician. She realized, the number one thing missing from getting it done was the political will, which is why she shifted over to make sure the will is there. And I think so. With all of those things in place, the only reason why anyone could want nuclear really is because they're involved with the nuclear lobby or they've bought the arguments from the nuclear lobby. I'm not saying you have that way. I'm not well, no, <laughs> I,
0: I support. I support a limited amount of nuclear. So let, this book, the, the gentleman who said we can have 100 percent of energy, yeah. not electricity, energy yeah. uh, from renewables. Where's he based? Is uh, it in the US? Or? Uh, I think
1: he is in the US. So if
0: you're, if you're somewhere in, say, northern Sweden, middle of winter, how on earth are you going to get 100% of your energy from renewables? Because you've got long nights. It's
1: very cold. Yeah, so I think this is similar to the argument that people make in the UK when they say the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Because I agree about 70% of the planet can probably run off renewables.
0: I agree with that, right? And we're
1: included in that part of the... uh,
0: Parts of the country, for sure, right? So like the equator, you have massive amounts of solar exposure. Obviously, you're warmer. You need less energy to warm your home, which, by the way, is the majority of energy that we expend in households rather than electricity to power stuff. And totally, I totally buy that. What I'm not sure about is Canada, Northern Europe, Russia, very long cold winters obviously very dark for long periods of time, so low solar exposure, yeah. you're very, very dependent on wind. You, you start, you're very dependent on wind. And I, I, I think for where we are, the part of the world we're in, particularly as you go north into Scotland, I mean, Scotland's a bit different because they have a massive bonanza of renewables fundamentally, but Northern England, and it gets very cold, I, I think there is an argument for a 15, 20% base load of nuclear, at least the next 20,
1: 25 years. Um, I think until we get the renewables up and running at the rate that we need to, then it's not me saying, you know, shut the nuclear power stations down tomorrow. That is absolutely not the yeah, that's not You're
0: not like the German Greens.
1: Well, I think that's a more com- complicated, you know, specific context. But I think, uh, <laughs> it sounded like a long phrase, didn't it? Um, I think the bigger point is this, is that people often talk about, um, you know, renewables and wind and solar being intermittent and variable. And that is true. But it's also true that it's predictable. And I think through demand-side storage, through crucially, <laughs> more investment in storage, in batteries. I think all of these things can happen. And being able to exchange where energy is made and being able to shift it to different parts of the country, if not the continent, is a really important conversation to have. And I think these things can only happen if we invest in them. We've not invested in them because we spent far too long talking about nuclear or Keir Starmer's talking about carbon capture. You know, technology is well, not no no exist. I've that's got no um, Sadiq Khan talking to me about sustainable aviation fuel. This is literally the argument of BP and Shell because they know it's not coming and they want oil and gas to keep going while they pretend Hold on. I mean,
0: there is there is an argument for um, hydrogen with planes because that could be you can generate hydrogen fuels off renewables. You can turn the electricity
1: into hydrogen fuel. Isn't that isn't that good? Yeah, I always find this argument bizarre though because if you need so you, to get hydrogen up and running, you need the renewables. So if you've got the renewables, why not just invest in renewables and
0: no? But to fly, obviously, electrical energy is an incredibly so. You're basically trying to convert electric to kinetic energy to yeah. to, to, to power a jetliner. It's not going to work, right? Right. Maybe for very small planes over very small different uh, distances, but what you need is uh, a fuel with very high energy density for aviation. We can do that by converting
1: renewables into hydrogen, even hydrogen cells. So why is that not good? Because again, if you can have renewables and you're not using kind of any fossil fuel or anything that you you know you need to, to be keeping. But that's the good. Well, but that's I, good. I think there's also a difference between blue hydrogen and green hydrogen, but you're right. talking about green hydrogen here, but I think that distinction is important. I think the jury is still out in terms of there still needs to be re- more research on that. But again, I come back to a fundamental point. If we know that wind energy and solar energy can power the UK with batteries, with demand-side storage, why have we not put massive investment in that? And that's exactly why the Green Party's policy is 100 billion pounds a year for 10 years, so essentially a trillion pounds, to invest in making sure we're insulating homes, that we're investing in science and research, that we're electrifying our transport network, that we're investing in public transport, that we're making sure that we're getting cars off road, all of those things that can and must happen. Now, um, that's a big number, and instantly the media go, that's so much money you're going to need to borrow. There's nothing wrong with borrowing. People are learning the wrong mistakes from Liz Truss's government. If you borrow to fund unfunded tax cuts, that's a real issue that will crash our economy, as we saw. But if you borrow to invest in green investment, that's exactly the arguments we should be making. And when the Labour Party is saying we were going to invest £28 billion, that was not nearly enough. I mean, that just about covers... The insulation that we were talking about, mm. not the whole list of other things I was talking about, and now the Labour Party can't even defend that they're, they're buying so hard into the argument with austerity. Now the reason why I'm going off on this tangent is because when you're investing all of that money, part of that money must be investment in renewables. And when you've got that those renewables, this ends this conversation. You, you don't need to. I don't think have it does. No fancy technologies. I that, don't think it does because you you said it's also r- the r- amount of water that is needed for nuclear energy yeah. as well is also yeah. an issue when yeah. water security is going to be a yeah one hundred
0: percent. I think the idea that like in France you say. We're going to have 100% of electricity from nuclear. I think you cannot do that. It's very dangerous. Clearly, we can have them even in somewhere like Britain. People say, well, we don't have much sunshine here for solar. Go look outside, lots of greenery. That's a solar powered chemical reaction. I I, I buy all of that, but you still will need a certain base load, I think, of 15 to 20% nuclear if you want to decarbonize rapidly without disruption, without people having to like see really major constraints in their energy consumption really quickly. So I think there's a political argument for nuclear as well. And you said it's the good thing with renewables is they're reliable. Yes, in the middle of winter in northern Europe, they're reliably bad. Like
1: that's that's the problem. Not when we've got battery and demand side storage going on at a much bigger rate. I think then there's a much uh, bigger case for reliable renewable energy. But I think the point here is is if you have baseload storage of 15 to 20% and I hear you say mm. that's what we need to accelerate the the road to net zero, I think that's what slows down the road to net zero because people go, we've got technologies, we're going to be saved, we just need a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And they're not doing the major investment that is needed in getting solar farms out there and getting wind turbines up. In Essentially, the Conservative government outlawed onshore wind. That's knocked us back 10, 20 years, and we should never let the Conservative government I think get away it just, with
0: that. I just think it mitigates risk. You say, look, there is going to be no risk here,
1: no chaos,
0: no volatility, because we know we have a certain amount coming from this legacy fuel source, which is low carbon. Yes, it's very controversial. It won't be, you know what, in 50 years, we might not even need it anymore. But we're trying to do this heroic transition. And this is actually probably necessary. And that's just my view. I
1: think the much bigger risk is that we don't meet the scale of the crisis with the urgency it needs. Just yesterday, I went to along to a community power station, um, sorry, community power project in Hackney, the Leaside Trust. They've installed solar panels there. And they showed me the the kilowatts that they're using. They're using half of it, which is literally powering their own, own area. And then half of it is going back to the grid. So actually, there's a huge economic argument for renewables as well. And I think the political narrative too, that community energy means people at the local level have more say, more democratic right, and more economic connection to their local areas, I think is also a strong narrative argument that needs to be told, too. I think the nuclear energy needs to be lost with Boris Johnson. It's that kind of big, if we could just build bigger things and stronger things. I know I'm being slightly unfair to the argument, but I think that does underlie it, that people want these big legacy projects. But actually, what we need is smaller, decentralized projects where people have these things in their local area. If we invest in that and we get that running and then the numbers go, this isn't working, then sure, let's have a conversation about nuclear. But I think that's the
0: point, because nuclear will take, as you've said, 15 to 20 years. And if we want to decarbonise by 2030, I think 2040 is realistic for the UK, sadly, because we voted in the Tories in 2019. But I I think that sort of, oh, actually, if we fail, oh, well, well, we'll do this instead. I think if you're saying we have to decarbonise by 2040, no ifs, no buts, I think nuclear has to be there.
1: Well, I think we go at renewables from the first day that we have Greens in the government uh, and hopefully, (laughs) I'd say hopefully a Labour government with Greens in it, whatever the mix looks like, you go straight for renewables. I mean, These renewable projects are ready to go, mostly. a big Mm. part of the problem is planning has essentially outlawed them. There's a second problem here, by the way, that isn't often talked about, but I think is worth it, that I've been pushing Sadiq Khan on, is the skills gap. And this is part of the just transition and the fact that we need to make sure that people have good jobs that are well-paid, but also serving something in society that even if the government tomorrow said to London or to Sadiq Khan, okay, we're ready for renewables, let's go. We both have supply issues, but also crucially, we don't have people trained to retrofit these things. Now, every time I talk to a mayor about this, he goes to me, well, it's a chicken and egg situation. I can't can't, uh, train people up right now, even though it takes three years to train an apprentice to retrofit in in construction. I can't train these people up now until there's jobs to go to. I'm like, you're the mayor of London. Pull your procurement levers. Get these jobs going. Have a big kind of Uh, citywide program, talk to the other mayors, make sure we've got these projects ready to go and then invest with your adult education budget in money. And I just think it's a complete lack of vision from the Labour Party at a time where it's not good enough, again, just to say the government aren't doing it. You need to be the opposition that has this very powerful, tangible vision of these jobs that are ready for people to go to, that are good jobs, that are well-paid, that are unionised, that um, feel like they have this collective responsibility towards society, but also tackling the climate emergency on a war footing. I don't really like these war metaphors. But oh, I think go for it. I think it's good. This is everyone's contribution to this. Is the only way we're going to meet the scale of this crisis.
0: Do you think that the Labour Party have sort of lost their mojo with this stuff a bit? Because it, there is a precedent here, right? Which is you have Herbert Morrison, literally in local government in London, you have people like Nye Bevan, you have Herbert Morrison, you know, Morrison's not on the left, you know, he's very much on the Labour right, but he's still a you know, Labour Party figure. He believed in trade unions, et cetera. You know, not all of them do anymore, but this is back in the in the 30s. You have um, Ernest Bevan. These people come out of the Labour movement, um, they get involved in civic government in the case of Herbert Morrison. They run a war economy, you know, the Ministry of War Planning, et cetera. And now you have Labour figures saying, oh, I can't, sorry, we can't train people until the job, you know, this is, Herbert Morrison wouldn't have said that. So what do you think's changed in Labour's psyche to go from people capable of literally running a war economy, building a ton of stuff, which they did in London in the 30s,
1: to now? I think it's complacency. I think it's an absolute complacency about people's vote that for too long, it has been about for 13 years, we've had such an awful government that I think they've thought the only thing they need to do is oppose that government just a little bit. And I think there's been that lack of vision and leadership. And I think, to be fair to the Labour Party, it's been there at moments. I see flashes of it from Ed Miliband. I think when he was leader, it wasn't necessarily there. But I think while he's been in shadow cabinet, I've certainly been on panels and heard him talk and thought, yes, if the Labour Party was talking a little bit more like that, that's a vision we could get behind. But I think we've seen him increasingly sidelined. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see him reshuffled out of the cabinet. I don't have any intelligence on that, but I think it it feels like... I don't know how long Ed Miliband can sit there for much longer with the plans he says that the government, the Labour government would do, that are complete contrast to what Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer are saying. So I think there's a very clear split there. I think we also saw it, frankly, from Jeremy Corbyn. I think uh, Corbyn's contribution to. waking up millions, particularly of younger people, should never be undervalued or underestimated. I think there was a fire there that is completely missing from the Labour Party now that was visionary, that was about a better society. Did I agree with everything he had to say? Absolutely not. We don't even need to rehearse those old arguments. But I just think that kind of power and compassion, authenticity of someone who believed in something and wanted to change things. I don't get that from Keir Starmer. I get a middle manager that just wants to kind of get through the day. Um, every so often make a bad joke that doesn't land, um, be on TV, on the studios, and and then retire. And I don't think that's unfair. In fact, I think that's quite generous.
0: I think you've summed up most of the liberal class in this country, which is just basically sit out and retire. That's basically it. That's what most of them seem to be doing. On that thread, Sadiq Khan, obviously you're an elected member of the London Assembly. You work with him in a relatively sort of close uh, proximity What's he like? Do you rate him as a politician?
1: Yeah, so a few times he's credited me with um, moving his uh, ideas on things or moving the argument. And, you know, I'd be lying to say that's not flattering. He's the, the mayor of London. And there are times, I'd say, where Greens and Labour have worked together on the assembly. I also think it is really worth saying that you know he's taken over from Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson cut like pride reception at City Hall. The mayor of London has been an amazing ally to the LGBT community. Uh, he's been really good on some social justice issues, too. So I think it would be churlish of me not to recognise that and say he's not an infinitely better mayor than Boris Johnson was. However, and it's a big however, again, there is a lack of vision. He's just written this book about the climate crisis. And in fact, I think I mentioned in the book, along with Sean Berry, my, my green colleague, it baffles me that he's written a book about the climate crisis, because at the same time, he's building the Silvertown Tunnel. For anyone who doesn't know, this is a £2.5 billion new road building project in the centre of London linking Newham and Greenwich. Newham has a disproportionately high working class community, disproportionately high people of colour or ethnic minority community, and it doesn't need new roads. Now, he says he's doing this to reduce congestion, but this flies in the face of any climate expert or any transport expert, which is something called induced traffic or induced road demand, which says, if you build more roads, you get more traffic. Now, he can claim that he doesn't believe in that, but you can't then write a book about the climate crisis, pretending to be an expert while taking money from, as he did, uh, from airports, from housing developers. And in fact, one day after being mayor, he talked about expanding city airport. Um, This is an airport disproportionately used by very, very wealthy people and business people. And I've already talked about the fact that he wouldn't even condemn private jet use. So I just wonder... The talk is very good. He talks a good game on the climate. And I'm always pleased to hear a senior politician talk about the climate. But you could almost argue it's worse because it makes people complacent. You think, oh, someone's got that. I saw Sadiq Khan talking about air pollution. I saw Sadiq Khan talking about the need to get to net zero. But then when it gets to the chamber or to his budget, that is not always backed by action. And I think, again, that creates a complacency where people think, oh, well, you know, Labour have got this. And to come back to your point about middle management and and problem solvers, I think that's exactly why we need green MPs. You do not become a green MP unless you have worked incredibly hard, unless you have faced adversity, unless you have so much passion that you have to work beyond what a person should have to work because of a broken first pass for post system where we've demonstrated we can win at local level. And so if someone wins at national level, you know that's someone who's going to fight for this country.
0: Do you think that people like Steve Khan are actually worse than climate deniers then? So they talk a good game now, the climate delays, right? Because yeah. they say, and also they, they 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 give people the misapprehension we're actually doing what we should be doing. Yeah. Where at least with climate deniers, they, they say it doesn't exist, you say it exists, most of the public agrees with you.
1: You try and convince them to do something, you do something. Yeah, maybe I'm far too reasonable, but I feel like that would be unfair to Sadiq because, again, he's done some good things like climate budgeting. That's come from Oslo, with the first city in the UK that are doing it, um, and that's essentially as well as your economic budget. You also look at the climate impacts of everything you're doing in terms of carbon emissions. Still not good enough because there's still huge holes in that pla- those plans, but at least he's made a first step towards that. And I feel, again, that's good. My worry is, you know, what does he do with that afterwards? So in the Green Party, for instance, we have we've long advocated for a carbon tax. Uh, we would you know, just to give you some numbers, we would say £100 on every tonne of carbon. The UK emits roughly 800 uh, <clears> metric tonnes a year. So that would be £80 billion that you would then be taking from the polluter pays. About 100 companies since 1988 have emitted three quarters of the emissions. That's saying, look at this deep injustice that's happening at the top of our society. Let's get that money from corporates. Let's spend that on social justice projects. Let's put it into a universal basic income, which I know that you have complicated feelings about. But I also support universal basic services. I think the only reason why people pit them against each other is they say, oh, you don't have the money to pay all of this. Well, I say, well, we do have the money. Let's do a wealth tax. Let's do a carbon tax. Let's go on a simple redistribution of there is immense wealth in this country country there is immense deprivation in this country it's not rocket science you move the money from a very wealthy you support people and i think that's how you get a better society i,
0: I do find it amusing it's obviously it's very good but i do find it amusing that a former tory voter in waveney valley is now potentially voting for the green party and the green party saying ubs and ubi you know they're more that's the left of me
1: well uh, and I, but i also think that it is a really good point i think there is a caricature of a Tory voter, and a Tory of voter course. is very different to a Tory MP and of a course. Tory donor. Of course. Um, and I think, I know you weren't suggesting this, but it's always tempting for me to go you know, I want to condemn the Tory voter, I want to blame them. But actually, if we want to win elections, the simple truth is no matter who what party you are, you both need to convince people who have never voted before and you need to convince people from other parties. And I think to do that, you have to assume that no one's a lost hope. And I think when people see a universal basic income, it's not that controversial. It's just saying that every single person in this this society should have a roof above their head, they should have food, they should have the means to get, you know, transport around the city. And of course, public transport should be cheaper, if not free. Um, to be able to do those things, I don't think it's that controversial. And actually, even if you're really wealthy, the spirit level and lots of research shows us that a more equal society is better for your Tory voter. It's better for your Tory donor. So, again, these aren't contentious issues. I just think they're things that haven't been communicated in the way maybe they should.
0: And I, it's important to say the average Tory voter is actually to the left of the Labour Party True. on... Um, Royal Mail, water, and and rail. To be fair, the Labour Party still are saying they'll nationalise that. But on Royal Mail and water, the majority of Tory voters from 2019 want to bring those things into public ownership. So, what is
1: Keir Starmer thinking? It should not be hard to support no, nationalisation. Like it's not like the private projects that are happening right now are running these services particularly well for anyone. Mm. I mean, that is an understatement. Let's look at the water companies. Let's look at the fact that we have literal shit pouring into our rivers and they're still like, oh, we're not sure about nationalisation. That is dire. And I just think the public are so in a different... I, I don't even know what Keir Starmer's strategy is at this point other than to send strong signals to the right of his party mm. that he's not there going to listen to anyone who might be to the left of where David Cameron was.
0: Yeah, but well, it's the investor class, isn't it, and potential donors. On uh, green activism, Just Stop Oil. Yeah. Are they bad for the climate movement? No. Uh
1: No. I So in 2018, I was arrested with Extinction Rebellion. I think there's really clearly a space for direct action. I then got elected and I don't feel the need to sit in a road anymore. I cha- yeah, have chaired an environment committee for the past two years. But lots of people don't have that opportunity and lots of people feel like the system is broken. Now, I've said several times on this this um, interview, and so I'll probably say it one final time, we can still win under first pass for post and we're demonstrating that at local elections. We're going to demonstrate it at national elections too. But I can understand why people feel frustrated that they voted green and they're not seeing a representation they deserve they're also seeing a conservative government that are exacerbating the climate crisis they're making it worse and a labor opposition that just aren't willing to be bold or call out that climate inaction so i can understand why people are frustrated enough to sit on roads now i think there's a more complex nuanced geeky argument i would make about sitting on a motorway is dangerous and actually you're putting people's lives at risk but i think just up oil have got better at not doing that anyway but i think if your action is safe it's peaceful it's non-violent and it's just disruptive, then disruption uh, disruptive action has to be part of any modern democracy. We've seen this with the suffragettes. We've seen this with civil rights. And I think it's absurd when anyone says, you know, disruptive action, they go, oh, you shouldn't pro- protest. It might disrupt people. I mean,
0: it's literally the point but of it. That, but that, that's a different question, though, isn't it? So uh, About I have, persuading people is the question. Uh, does it work? Is it effective? So we, we agree it should happen. I think they should be able to do
1: it. And I yeah. think the people saying they should be in prison, I think it's, I don't agree with that. Does it work is a big question, right? So every time Just Stop Oil do something like this, I'm instantly asked to tour the TV and radio studios and go on and talk about the climate crisis. Now, granted, they don't want to talk about the climate crisis. They want a 30 second clip of me talking about protests because they're trying to gotcha you. I have created ways of moving away from that and talking about the climate crisis and taking that moment. The point is, though, we shouldn't need people to sit on the roads to do this. All of the media organisations should be going. The climate crisis is the biggest crisis facing us right now. It's interlinked with all of the things we're talking about today, the housing crisis and NHS on its knees. The fact that people who are disabled in this community frequently aren't listened to or even consulted about anything. All of these things are part of that same issue that we're not talking about the issues that matter. We're talking about people sitting on roads. So... You know, I have sympathy for the argument that sitting on roads is distracting from these issues that we should be talking about, but we're not talking about these issues or the media aren't. So So if they do this to get people talking about these issues, then... You know, it's not something I want to do, but I can completely understand why they do it.
0: So every time it happens, you are invited to talk about the climate crisis effecti- no, I'm in, effectively. I'm, I'm invited
1: to talk about disruptive yeah, action, which but you, leads me to talk about climate crisis. But I
0: mean, that's an argument for Just a poor, isn't it? Because yeah. it means that all of a sudden the spokespersons for this movement have a megaphones, the public to repeatedly talk about the issues that they're campaigning on.
1: Yeah, and that's why I don't condemn them for doing it. It's not something So I it is do. effective, well, I don't know if it's effective because I think there's the argument that, you know, it's always a timing thing that actually I think sometimes when it's happening every single day, people just stop listening to it and the media stop reporting right. to it. When they're distanced from each other, then I think sometimes it is really good to have another hit of, okay, let's talk about the climate crisis. But again, it's absurd. Why are we not talking about these issues every single day? Why do, why has there been a mass movement of strikes across the country? And for a couple of days the media report it but the only reporting they do is are strikes disrupting you they don't talk about why are these people striking why have these people not had an infl- inflation uh, linked pay rise, and obviously it deserve more than that, the IFS, Institute for Fiscal Studies, hardly like a radical organisation, have said that if, if, you, give, yeah, if you give every pu- public sector uh, pay worker a 7% pay rise, obviously it should be more than that. But even if you went for a conservative 7% pay rise, that would cost £5 billion. That is nothing compared to the £27 billion that we're, we're spending on new roads or that we're spending on nuclear weapons or military. I mean, these things are all so obvious that it's almost frustrating to have to say them. But again the media narrative is so consigned by, com- confined by the conservative narrative and the labor narrative, these things are often not talked about. And then those odd moments when you get to talk about them, Twitter lights up and people go, wow, why is no one talking about these? And you go, I want to talk about these things every day, but frequently the mainstream media are not giving us the opportunity, which is a good moment to thank you for, for platforming me today.
0: Oh, well, my pleasure. I mean, this is why people should, of course, uh, support Navarro Media too. Um, Roger Hallam. Yes. What do you think of him? We had him on, very interesting character, a little bit eccentric, I don't think you'd mind me saying that.
1: Right, I mean, the first thing to say about Roger Hallam is I think anyone who has inspired a movement or been part of a movement has achieved things. So I think it's never, I always believe I'm going back to being an actor actually, Uh, critics that just criticize things, but aren't actors or work in theater I used to find immensely frustrating. I used to be like, why are you criticizing? Why not create? Why not go and do something better and demonstrate what you want that way? And I feel the same about politics, really, actually criticizing other people who are working in the movement. I think it's always better to go, I'm going to demonstrate how to do this. And I think electoral politics... Sorry,
0: can you say this again? yeah.
1: Yeah. I think electoral politics and demonstrating the strength of a ballot box and the fact that Greens can get elected is one of the best things I could ever do rather than criticising individuals. Don't want to turn a blind eye to the fact, though, I do think he said some problematic things. Don't necessarily want to get to the ins and outs of them just because partly, to be honest, I can't remember them off the top of my head, so it's not fair for me to kind of slur someone to say, oh, they might have said of this, they might have said of that. I think the much more obvious thing to say, though, is it is noticeable how much the media have come for him and tried to expose him and tried to say, oh, look, he's done this, or he's look, he he said this. Gail Bradbrook is another one where... I went on LBC recently with Nick Ferrari to talk about the climate crisis. And the first question he wanted to ask me was about Gail Bradbrook driving to an Extinction Rebellion protest. Would I drive to an Extinction Rebellion protest? No, I don't even drive. I can also understand though, if you had three other people in the car or you had equipment in the car and you couldn't get it on the train or whatever the Mm. reasons are, that might be a reason why you you drive to a protest. And I just think- Or if
0: you live in a rural community. Right, Like If you live in Cumbria, what the hell are you going to do? You're not going to walk for like a day or something to get to like, Carlisle or whatever the largest city is there. And the
1: media do this to me constantly. I mean, I'm vegan, I don't fly, I don't drive a car, but I don't do any of these things because I think it would be hypocritical to do them. I think you can talk about the climate crisis and still do things in your own individual behaviour that aren't perfect, but we don't live in a perfect society. And until getting a train is cheaper than flying or getting on a bus or a train is cheaper than being in a private car, then it is unfair and frankly smacks of privilege. To expect people to have to do these things and I think when people put their head above the parapet like Gail Bradbrook it's very noticeable that the media immediately come for them and that's because these people are a threat to the homogeny of the media and the right-wing corporate interests and frankly the oil and gas companies that fund both these politicians or the journalism that happens uh, that of course they're going to look to discredit you and I think you know I've certainly felt that at moments in my career too and I think it's important that we, we call that out. And the reason why I don't fly or drive or, or be vegan, to be honest, is just because I don't want to be on the back foot when I'm in the media. It's much easier to shut that down and go, no, actually, I take total individual responsibility for things I do. But frankly, I sh- shouldn't have to do that. We should have systemic change. I just do that because systemic change is so important to me. I have the privilege to be able to do that, and I pay a bit more to get a train.
0: With Roger Hallam, what's really interesting is he used to be a farmer. right? Right. And he says the thing that politicized and radicalized him was the experience of basically several poor um Summers. Right. And you know, he his his business was in trouble. And I said to him, well look, farmers throughout history have had, you know, a, a series of crop failures. Yeah. Uh, but he put it down to climate change and you know, you look at the numbers objectively, it's a very plausible hypothesis basically. And when I say that to people, if I sort of talk to people in right-wing media, I say, well, you don't think it exists. This guy thinks it exists. You're mocking him. Actually, his business was literally growing crops that we need to eat and he disagrees and the science kind of agrees with him. And yet, our culture is making him sound like the maniac. I think that says something quite frightening. You know, the guy was growing food, and yet apparently he has no credi-
1: credibility on the climate crisis. Yeah, I think this in the House of Lords too. So our two uh, Green peers, and Natalie Bennett and Jenny Jones, and they're just two women who I know take so much time and effort to look at evidence and to look at our policy and to be able to speak from an articulate expert place. But frequently, when when people attack them or any elected Green, pol- you know, or elected they're not elected, um, but any Green representative. I just think this stuff is based on the evidence and it's been thought through, whereas a lot of the time, Emily Maitlis talked quite well about this, about finding balance on Newsnight. It's just someone from down the pub or someone who has an opinion that's not based on evidence at all. But in talking about the climate crisis, that's presented as balance and and that's not balance at all. And I, I think that's another issue.
0: Well, the reason why I raised Roger Hallam is that he would say that pursuing Green transformation, decarbonisation, changing politics through electoralism is a waste of time. Um, And he would say that, you know, we've got catastrophe coming down the line and it's inadequate, frankly. Do you worry that with the approach you've adopted, that we're crawling rather than running towards a solution?
1: I do worry that we're crawling rather than running. But the way to run is to get Greens elected and to come back to a theme. That's why we need more Green MPs. I don't think it's either or. I think there will be a space for direct action. I think, frankly, even with the Green Government, there will be a space for direct action because when you have to handle various conflicting interests, it means sometimes you will not serve a community in the way they want to be served, and it's only right that they speak up about that, and you have to find the nuance of that. But I think, ultimately, it's quite clear that if people want action, on climate, they need to vote green. And I think what's often missed as well is the national stuff is important, but actually local climate action is incredibly important. And that's why it's really exciting that we now have I think mean, nine or 10 green council leaders who are in administration across the country. We have hundreds of councillors who are there getting direct action in terms of electoral politics within the community. I was just in Worcester um, just this weekend and just the rise of Worcester Greens has, has been amazing and they've got things going on like bike buses to school. This is where parents or carers take their children with their bikes and they kind of ride on convoy. Now they shouldn't need to do that. We should have proper cycling infrastructure that's segregated so people feel safe. But the fact that these green councils are starting to bring in these initiatives that draw attention to the fact that we have this completely upside down society that favors fossil fuels, doesn't favor renewables, It favours business interests rather than communities and grandchildren and grandparents and the elder elder community, or the community, sorry. It's all so unbalanced. And I think to have green councillors at the local level, as much as I talk about national politics, is crucial. And frankly, when we get more green MPs, I will still be a huge advocate of the importance of local action because green MPs are really important for that national strategy. But in terms of the day to day stuff of actually getting things done and changing in the community, Local representation is hugely important.
0: You won't hear that from many politicians in the Conservative or the Labour Party. <laughs> so that's a good place to finish on. Zach Blansky, thanks for joining us. Thanks on so much
1: for having me on this very hot day.
0: <laughs> we got there in the end.
1: <laughs> Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarro
0: Media from just one pound a month. Head to navara.media/support.